Scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Listen now for God's word to you. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So after I graduated from college, I moved back in with my parents to be closer to my then-girlfriend, who is my now wife. Um, and during that time, Heather and I joined an Episcopal church. It was a kind of a, a respite for me, a place of recovery following my cognitive dissonance with evangelicalism. And so I remember one particular Sunday, Heather and I were sitting in the same pew we sat in every single Sunday towards the back. Um, I know I give everyone a hard time about sitting in the back, but the truth is, if I wasn't up here preaching, I'd be sitting on the back wall there, right? I'd be sitting all the way in the back. So we were sitting there getting ready for service and uh, getting ready for the opening hymn, the procession, and the opening words from the priest. And, and as we were sitting there, the priest and the choir was starting to gather. And in the pew sitting in front of us, there was a little girl who was maybe three or four years old, who was there visiting for the first time with her mom. And she was acting the way that a three- or four-year-old would act in church, in a new surrounding for the first time, climbing on the pew, excited about all the new things that she was seeing. And so she was looking towards the back as the choir gathered, and in the choir was a man named Don Craig. He was kind of this eccentric Canadian man who was in his 70s, somebody I was glad that I had gotten to know. And at that point in his life, he had a head full of white hair and this big, long, bushy white beard that went down to about his chest. Uh, he was growing it out for locks of love. So this little girl dancing on the pew, she sees Don Craig with his big, bushy white beard and white hair and his choir robe, and she leans over to her mom and whispers, Is that God? <laughs> now, as hilarious as that moment was to me, I think that it's also true for most of us when we picture or imagine God, we imagine what sits on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, what Michelangelo painted, a man with a big flowing white beard and a choir robe. We imagine what we see in comic strips. That our, 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 The way we typically think about God is in these sort of male terms. And this tendency is revealed in a study that was published back in 2021, where the researchers asked roughly 3,000 undergraduate students to write down what God means to them. And of the top three results, the first one was thinking about God in terms of power, that is, God is almighty and omnipotent, those sorts of things. The second was thinking of God as human, that we tend to picture God in human terms. And the third was God as male. 
This is our instinct. It's to think of God in male sort of ways. And it's revealed a lot in the ways that we worship and the ways that we pray. Think about the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father if you were raised Catholic. Already the title that we've given it has male language to it. It begins and ends addressing God as male, our Father who art in heaven, and it ends talking about a kingdom. Think about, too, our preference towards imagining God and using pronouns like he, that we have this tendency to imagine God in these male sort of ways. Uh, And of course, there's nothing wrong with imagining God as male, but I also think we miss something when we fail to attend to those feminine depictions, those feminine images of God. That throughout the Bible, God is described as and self-describes as a womb, as a nursing mother who cannot forget her child, as a, a mama bear protecting her cubs, as a mother eagle. We have all of these varieties of ways of thinking about God in feminine terms, and all of those deserves their own sort of conversation. Um, I told Pastor Gretchen what I was preaching on this week. I was preaching on the feminine image of God, and she goes, what, you're spending only one week on that? Shame on me. We should do a whole sermon series on it. There's enough material there. Uh, But for this Sunday, we'll focus just on one image of God that comes to us, a feminine image of God, and that is from Luke 13, where Jesus describes himself as a brooding hen who longs to gather the children of Jerusalem like a, a mother hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings. So if you go to the Holy Land on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, about halfway up, you'll find the church of Dominus Flavet. The current structure was built in 1955, but it sits on a much more ancient church foundation, one from the 6th century. It was a Byzantine church. And and as they've uncovered parts of this, this old church building, they've uncovered all of these beautiful mosaics. And one of those sits on the front of the communion altar, and it's this image. This image of Jesus as a mother hen gathering her chicks beneath her wings. And yes, this was a a debate in the first service. Yes, this is a hen and not a rooster. Um, I know the the stuff on their head makes us think it's a rooster, but it is. I have visual confirmation that it's a hen. So if you want that and you need that, I can give that to you. Um, This is a hen gathering her chicks beneath her wings. It's not the sort of typical image we would think of when it comes to Jesus. That we often think of Jesus sort of like a king sitting on a throne with a scepter in his hands and a crown on his head. We think maybe of him as a shepherd. We have all these sorts of different images. But this is not one that we typically associate with Jesus, this mother hen. But it is a a stunning image, I think. And it's interesting to me where Jesus uses this image within the narrative flow of the Gospel of Luke. You can take it down now, Doug. Where he uses this in the narrative flow of the Gospel of Luke that we're sort of towards the beginning of this big transition in the gospel, the sort of hinge verse that takes place in Luke chapter 9. It says that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. That is to say that Jesus sets his entire life and purpose and ministry towards heading to the holy city. Everything that he is, everything that he teaches and embodies, the love, the table fellowship, the community, the justice, the kingdom of God, all of that comes with him. And he comes bringing it to Jerusalem. And he goes knowing that in going, he will likely be killed. But he goes, I think, because he's holding out hope, this possibility that perhaps Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, will in fact listen to him. 
the, a churning, I think, within God's heart, within Jesus' heart for the city of Jerusalem, a, a churning that I think is still going on even to this day with all of the events happening in the news, not just for Jerusalem, but for all cities, all places, this longing for our world to be a place of peace. And, and what Jesus brings offers that possibility. But of course, Jerusalem and so many places throughout history have rejected what Jesus brings. Forty years on from this moment, the Romans will come in and after a failed revolt by the Jewish people, and they will destroy Jerusalem. Uh, they'll raise the temple to the ground. It still hasn't been rebuilt to this day. And so you see Jesus sitting outside of the city, weeping for it, longing for it. If only you had listened, if only I could gather you as a, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, perhaps you would have realized the possibility of peace. I think this, this image of Jesus as a mother hen gives us a lot to consider when it comes to thinking about God in feminine terms. Uh, because when we think about God, whenever it comes to, in terms of gender, there's always a risk, whether it be thinking of God in male terms or in female terms, there's always a risk in thinking about God in gendered ways. Because the ways we construct gender are always socially and culturally located. So we have all of these ideas about gender that not every single person fits into. We have ideas about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, and these often arise from the place in which we live. So we have all of these stereotypes. So think about Western American culture, the idea of what masculinity looks like. It's stoicism, it's dominance, it's aggression. Think of the sort of archetype of what an American man looks like. It's John Wayne, right? This rugged individual but we also know that not all men identify and feel like that. That's not how they express their masculinity. That some men are tender and soft. Uh, think about Mr. Rogers and his ability, to re his ability to connect with children. He is no less a man than John Wayne was. Same thing is true when it comes to femininity, to thinking about what it means to be a woman. We have these ideas of passivity and accommodation and all of these sorts of things and and tenderness, and emotional availability. But we also know not every woman finds themselves in those categories. Some women are stoic, some women are dominant. So we have these culturally constructed ideas about gender, and then we start thinking about God in gendered terms. We easily carry those ideas and place them onto God, even when not everybody fits neatly and easily within those categories. And it's also true that our ideas about gender very widely between cultures. So this is not something new. This is not a new discovery. The anthropologist Margaret Mead back in the 1930s, so 90 years ago, working among a tribe of people in uh, Papua New Guinea, she noticed the differences in the way men and women acted, how they sort of shirked the gender norms that we have in Western American society. So she noticed among the men, they were happy to sit around and socialize, to talk about jewelry and shopping, in fact, they considered a day out shopping to be the, one of the best things you could do with your day, whereas the women were more dominant. So imagine sitting down with this tribe in Papua New Guinea and praying the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, referring to God as male. What sort of images are they conjuring up? It might be rather different than what we are imagining. And I think that this is why this image of Jesus as a mother hen, as God as a mother hen, is so important because it really cuts against these sort of stereotypes we carry around. 
The image of a brooding hen is not a soft, passive, tender image. A brooding hen is one that is either wanting to lay eggs or has, uh, has already laid eggs. So think about this as a hen who's maybe in labor. And those of, us, those of us men who have watched our wives in labor, we know how tough and strong they have to be to do that. I used to, I used to, say, to, uh, I used to say that I didn't become a man until I watched Heather go through labor. Um, we know how, how much strength this takes. A brooding hen, if she's not trying to give, uh, not trying to lay eggs, she is trying to protect her chicks. So this is a, a hen who's edgy, who's in a bad mood. She will screech at anybody who comes near her nest. She will puff up and make herself big. She'll start pecking at the hands of anybody who tries to bother her chicks. It's maybe best to understand what a brooding hen is through another metaphor in the animal kingdom. This is like a mama bear. This is one wanting to defend her children. I think a lot of moms experience this feeling, this desire to protect your children, and even at the expense of yourself. I remember telling Heather not long after Nora was born that I learned more about what God is like watching her as a mom than I did in any seminary classroom. And she sort of just blew me off and said, you're just trying to earn brownie points. Um, but I meant it with utmost sincerity that watching her in the way that, ways that she gives at the sacrifice of her own self, it's, I think, what God is like. And this happens in ways that are big and in ways that are small. And you know, one of the small ways is when we have a carton of ice cream and there's enough for the four of us to, to have an even distribution relative to the size of the child, an even distribution of the ice cream, and <laughs> and one of the kids inevitably wants more, and so I'm guarding my bowl like this, <laughs> and Heather is busy scooping out her ice cream saying, it's okay, I don't need any. I know she wants it, but she gives of herself to her kids. I think this is true for a lot of moms. They give so much of themselves that they are often those who carry the emotional pain and feelings of their own children. I think this is true for so many women across cultures, that they are the ones who carry emotional pain um, for their families, for their children, for their communities, sometimes even for their nation. And it's not to say that men never don't do this or never do this, but I think historically it's been women who have carried emotional pain. I, I see it all the time. I see it as I... I plan for funerals. It's often the, the daughters, the daughters-in-law who come and organize the event, who speak with me and retell the stories. Or think about the events on the news, the wars in Israel and Palestine and Ukraine. Not to say that men don't bear the costs of war. They bear a very tremendous cost of war, often through fighting. And on this Veterans Day weekend, it's something that certainly bears discussion as well. But think about the images of who's huddling together in subway tunnels, Who's packing the belongings and going off to refugee camps? It's the, the mothers, the grandmothers, the aunts, it's the women of the community who are holding on to that emotional pain for their community, for their nation in a lot of ways. I think even about my own mother, who the weekend I was dropped off at college for the first time, and I'm the oldest, and so I had no one to blaze the trail for me, and so I was extra nervous and anxious about this new experience, and uh, I remember towards the end of the weekend that my parents were there. My mom just wouldn't stop crying. I was like, Mom, stop crying. It's embarrassing. But it wasn't because, oh, my baby's going off to college. It was she could sense that I wasn't feeling okay, that I was nervous, and she was experiencing it as if it was her own experience. 
This is why we want mom to come and see us when we're sick, right? I mean, I remember when Axel was born and he had pneumonia and I was scared out of my mind. The only person in the world I wanted to talk to was my mom because she could feel it. She could experience it as if it was happening to herself. I read an article this week from a clinical psychologist uh, who specializes in dealing with issues of trauma in communities of color and in impoverished communities. And her article talked about what we now call the racial reckoning of 2020. And she talks about how the experience of mothers of color was heightened during that time. The, the omnipresent images of racialized violence on the screen caused them to have this heightened sense of wanting to protect their children, that for a lot of them, they have PTSD-like symptoms from that experience. I think in a lot of ways, mothers of color carried the emotional weight of that event, not only for their children and their families and their communities, but also for the nation as a whole. Or think, too, about the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. Arrested, uh, tried, convicted, then crucified. Who is it that stands at the foot of the cross? The male disciples are long gone by that point. They ran away as soon as they heard the mob coming to arrest Jesus. But there are the women who none of the gospels name as disciples, but certainly a disciple stands at the foot of the cross in Jesus' darkest moment. Or they're the ones who show up on that first Easter before any of us know it's Easter, and they come with the spices to prepare Jesus' body. This, I think, is often the experience of women. This is the, what I see in this image of, of Jesus as a brooding hen, one who can hold on to emotional pain, to experience it as if it is happening to Jesus himself, to God herself. And so we ask the question, what is God like? What if we started to elevate images like this one to their proper place, elevated them to the same level as Lord and Father and King, what might it do for us? We might start to see a different level, a different angle on God's strength, the strength that comes from being able to hold on to the pain of the world. We might see a, a God who is not distant from us, who doesn't deal with our pain and our heartache, our joys and our celebrations, far away somewhere, but as if they were happening to God herself. That when we say things and view ourselves as less than or as unlovable, it's not just that we're beloved, but that we are lovable. There's something lovable about each and every one of us. When we view ourselves not in those ways, then God experiences it if it's happening to God herself. Or that when there's wars and generational poverty and racial violence, it's as if God is experiencing it God's very self. What might happen if we started to imagine God in these sorts of ways? Perhaps it might be that someday there will be a three- or four-year-old dancing on the pews in the back of the church, looking towards the back and seeing the mothers and the women of the church and all the things that they do, and she'll lean over and whisper to her parent, Is that God? Amen.